This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Morning, I'd like to continue our discussion. Martin Buber's I and Thou, but I'll begin uh, reading an exchange from the Book of Serenity. Master Hogan said to his student, Shuzan, if there's even a hair's breadth of difference, heaven and earth are clearly separated. How do you understand this? Shuzen replied, There's even a hair's breadth of difference. Heaven and earth are clearly separated. The master asks him, how do you understand this? And the hook in there, the trick in there, is the suggestion that understanding itself already creates a separation. Understanding implies a knower and a known. And instead, the student here simply reflects back exactly what the teacher said. No separation through identity. No separation by not imposing any kind of conceptual understanding uh, between the self and the world. So that kind of immediacy, identity, non-separation are what's typically privileged in the Zen dialogues. And Buber is going to be concerned with non-separation but coming from a different direction and with a different kind of uh, way of formulating the problem and the solution. And we should listen carefully for how he's distinct in what he's offering. I think it's uh, all too often uh, that we sort of imagine that all these great mystics and teachers are all really pointing to the same thing and we tend to homogenize things together uh, and uh, ignore difference. But let's uh, try to listen for what's distinctive in Buber. I'm going to just read through a few pages of text and comment as I go. Uh, beginning on uh, page 11 of the uh, 
text we sent out. What then do we experience of thou? Just nothing, but we do not experience it. What then do we know of thou? Just everything, but we know nothing isolated about it anymore. And so this starts off where it seems like it's a parallel between experiencing here and understanding in the koan. We do, we do not experience thou. But we want to go on and see what does that mean? Because we know thou knowing it it's in entirety. Uh, the danger with experiencing seems to be that it's engaging only parts rather than the whole. The thou meets me through grace. It's not found by seeking. But my speaking of the primary word to it is an act of my being, indeed the act of my being. Thou meets me but I step into direct relation with it. Hence, the relation means being chosen and choosing, suffering and action in one. Just as any action of the whole being, which means the suspension of all partial actions, and consequently of all sensations of actions grounded only in their particular limitation, is bound to resemble suffering. That's a uh, complicated sentence, and uh, it's using suffering in a way that uh, we're not uh, used to. In Buddhism, uh, suffering is immediately uh, defined as the problem, and the, uh, the consequence of attachment desire, and so forth. Suffering is what we are trying to eliminate. But here, suffering is uh, described in a very different way. The, he says, the relation with thou means being chosen and choosing, suffering and action in one. Suffering is an aspect of human relation. Doesn't seem to be problematized or something we're going to eliminate by the right kind of relation. Rather that uh, the awareness and experience of the other's suffering is part of our recognition of them as a thou. Uh, we might say that an it does not suffer. An it, an object, is just uh, something that has things happen to it. But thou is another subjectivity, another whole human being, and one of the qualities of subjectivity, along with choosing and action, is suffering. 
It's how we recognize each other as human. It's not something we're here to eliminate. And the other, the other important point I would I think we should always keep in mind when we read this is that when he talks about I, thou, and I, it, I does not precede entering into these uh, relationships. It's not as if I'm here and then I go out and encounter an object or encounter another person. Who I am is constituted by those encounters and by those relations. I do not pre-exist them. I am who I am because of the relations I enter into, whether I, it, or I, thou. So this is a, this is a different kind of uh, non-separation. It's not based on identity, but on a different level of interdependence. The primary word, I, thou, can only be spoken with the whole being. Concentration and fusion into whole being can never take place through my agency, nor can it ever take place without me. I become through my relation to the thou. As I become I, I say thou. All real living is meeting. I become through my relation to thou. In a sense, I only realize my humanness, or my, he might say, my full being by relating to other human beings. If I live in a world solely of objects or people that I treat as objects, my own humanness is never realized. It's as if I live the life of an object in a world of objects. How do I really come alive as a human being is, is his basic question. The relation to thou is direct. No system of ideas, no foreknowledge, no fancy intervene between I and thou. Fancy here, I think, means imagination. The memory itself is transformed as it plunges out of its isolation into the unity of the whole. No aim, no lust, and no anticipation intervene between I and thou. Desire itself is transformed as it plunges out of its dream into the appearance. Every means is an obstacle. Only when every means is collapsed does that meeting come about. So here he's trying to talk about 
what kind of relationship uh, forges the connection between I and thou. And our usual way of talking about relationship, uh, and we could say the typical Buddhist way, is to talk about it in terms of desire, attachment, need, dependency, right? All, all these kinds of things. Uh, and in, in this case, he's, he's, he's saying that all those kinds of uses of the other don't constitute a genuine I-thou relationship. It's, we're not connecting just in order to fulfill a need. Uh, to satisfy a desire. Connection at some level, uh, we want to say, is taking place on a different dimension. It's not that those are going to be eliminated or unreal. We're not going to eliminate desire or need. But he's suggesting there's something more basic. In the face of the direct, directness of the relation, everything indirect becomes irrelevant. It's also irrelevant if my thou is already the it for other eyes, the object of general experience, or it can become so through the very accomplishment of this act of my beings. For the real, he's going to say, for the real boundary though certainly swaying and swinging, runs neither between experience and not experience, nor between what is given and what is not given, nor yet between the world of being and the world of value, but can, cutting indifferently across all these provinces, it lies between I, it lies between thou and it, between the present and the object. All our usual ways of engaging all run this risk of objectifying the other and yet are potentially part of an encounter with the whole of the other. Although this apparently, he says, this boundary is constantly swaying and swinging. We may... I gather, uh, sort of always switch back and forth between our level of engagement. But we still are sort of um, groping towards what really is going to constitute an I-thou relationship. What, uh, what is the real definitive nature of that encounter if it's not on the basis of our usual forms of uh, desire-based relating. The present, and by that is meant not the point which indicates 
from time to time in our thought merely the conclusion of finished time, the mere appearance of termination, which is fixed and held, but the real filled present exists only insofar as actual presentness, meeting, and relation exist. The present only arises in virtue of the fact that thou becomes present. This is a new idea about the nature of time and our being present only in the presence of thou. Presence and the present are going, are somehow very closely related here. The I of the primary word I it, that is the I faced by know thou, but surrounded by a multitude of contents, or we would say a multitude of things, has no present, only the past. Put in another way, insofar as man rests satisfied with the things that he experiences and uses, he lives in the past, and his moment has no present content. He has nothing but objects. But objects subsist in time that has been. The present is not fugitive and transient, but continually present and enduring. The object is not duration, but cessation, suspension, a breaking off and cutting clear, and hardening, an absence of relation and of present being. True beings are lived in the present. A life of objects is in the past. So here, it's very uh, interesting that the present is not uh, just this instant moment, which is constantly disappearing into the past, replaced by another present moment. The present is tied up with presence, being present, being present with a thou. And that relation constitutes an ongoing present. If we are in an I-thou relation, we are continually in the present. As soon as we objectify the other, the present dissolves into the past. It sort of holds out this uh, promise of a kind of eternal present, living in an eternal present of I-thou relation. Appeal to a world of ideas as a third factor above this opposition, I-thou and I-it, will not do away with its essential twofold nature. For I speak of nothing else but the real man, you and me, of our life and of our world. Not of an I, 
or a state of being in itself alone. The real boundary for the actual man cuts right across the world of ideas as well. To be sure, many a man who is satisfied with experience and the use of the world of things has raised over and above himself a structure of ideas in which he finds refuge and repose from the oncome of nothingness. On the threshold, he lays aside his inauspicious everyday dress, wraps himself in pure linen, and regales himself with the spectacle of primal being or of necessary being, but his life has no part of it. To proclaim his ways may even fill him with well-being. So this is a uh, swipe at the philosophers who want to substitute a a metaphysical abstraction, such as capital B, being, or reason, or truth, as if this is our true nature to unite with something transcendent and abstract. But he says, uh, this is the great temptation of philosophy and perhaps of a lot of religion. Uh, We wrap ourselves in abstractions, laying aside our inauspicious everyday dress, wrapping himself in pure linen, right? Just wrapping yourself up in all sorts of beautiful, transcendent, philosophical fantasies. But this uh, has nothing to do with coming into genuine relation, has nothing to do with really discovering yourself, which is only going to be discovered in relation, not in uh, the cultivation of any private inner state. I think that, in a way, may be the most radical idea here, that we can get so used to the idea that uh, in meditation, what we're doing is cultivating states of consciousness, trying to realize something that we call Kensho or enlightenment, as if that is something that happens inside us, privately. This is a kind of radical denial of these kinds of private states. Who I am only emerges relationally. Who I am only can develop fully in relation, not uh, not by having something spectacular suddenly occur between my ears while I'm sitting alone. But the mankind of mere it that is imagined, postulated, and propagated by such a man has nothing in common with a living mankind where thou may truly be spoken. The noblest fiction is a fetish. The loftiest fictitious sentiment is depraved. 
all this transcendent philosophy is just another uh, version of I it. Ideas are no more enthroned above our heads than resonant in them. They wander among us and accost us. The man who leaves the primary word unspoken is to be pitied. But the man who addresses instead these ideas with an abstraction or a password as if, as if it were their name is contemptible. Of the three examples, it's obvious that the direct relation includes an effect on what confronts me. The three examples are art, nature, and uh, uh, I thou with another person. In art, the act of being determines the situation in which the form becomes the work. Through the meeting that which confronts me is fulfilled and enters the world of things, where it's to be endlessly active, endlessly to become an it, but also endlessly to become thou again, inspiring and blessing. It is embodied. Its body emerges from the flow of spaceless, timeless present on the shore of existence. It's a strange idea about uh, the uniqueness of art as uh, a mode of I thou. And I think we can approach this by suggesting that art is an expression of our, our being in the present. It is uh, not instrumentalized. It's not a means to an end activity that distinguishes it from I, it, work. The significance of the effect is not so obvious in the relation with the thou spoken to men. The act of being which provides directness in this case is usually understood wrongly as being one of feeling. Feelings accompany the metaphysical and metapsychological fact of love, but they do not constitute it. The accompanying feelings can be of greatly different kinds. Again, we're trying to say, what, what really is I-thou? Is, is this a matter of desire or feeling? He's saying, no, it's something else. It's love, but what, what is love? The feeling of Jesus for the demonic differs from his feeling for the beloved disciple, but the love is one love. Feelings are entertained. Love comes to pass. Feelings dwell in man, but man dwells in his love. This is no metaphor, but the actual truth. That seems very uh, mysterious, doesn't it? It's not a metaphor, but the actual truth. Well in love. What is this love? Love does not cling to the eye in such a way as to have the thou only for its content or its object. But love is between 
I and thou. The man who does not know this, with his very being know this, does not know love. Even though he ascribes to it the feelings he lives through, experiences, enjoys, and expresses. I think the suggestion is most of us misunderstand love, equate it with feeling and desire and pleasure. Love ranges in its effect through the whole world. In the eyes of him who takes his stand in love and gazes out of it, men are cut free from their entanglement in bustling, bustling activity. Good people and evil, wise and foolish, beautiful and ugly, become successively real to him. That is, set free, they step forth in their singleness and confront him as thou. The best understanding I can offer of this is that love seems to be the, uh, the most basic level of recognition of the other's uh, subjectivity as a separate uh, human being. It's that kind of primal recognition of the other, uh, not as an it, but as, as another person, as another subjectivity. And that recognition uh, is prior to and more fundamental than any uh, quality of desire or connection. And it's something we can feel for people of all kinds, good and evil, wise and foolish, beautiful and ugly. To love them all is to recognize their essential human nature, right? To treat them as you're meeting a person, not as a type, not as somebody who's useful or not useful, the object of your desire or not, and so forth. In a wonderful way, from time to time, exclusiveness arises. So he can be effective, helping, healing, educating, rising up, saving. All these usual ways of talking about love or connection uh, arise secondarily from recognition. Love is responsibility of an I for a thou. That becomes his definition. But responsibility, uh, I take almost uh, sort of literally as responsiveness. Love uh, means the uh, responsiveness or recognition of the other as a thou. In this lies the likeness, impossible in any feeling whatsoever, of all who love, from the smallest to the greatest, from the blessedly protected man who is surrounded in that of a loved being, to him who is all his life nailed to the cross of the world and who ventures to bring himself to the dreadful point to love all men. So he wants to um, 
vastly expand what we usually mean by love away from this sense of the exclusive feeling I have for, you know, my uh, loved partner into what does it mean to recognize everybody as a fellow human being. Finally, he says, let the significance of the effect in the third example, that of the creature and our contemplation of it, remain sunk in mystery. These are the three modes of I-Thou. He started with art, then he's talked about relations with human beings, and now there's the third, the relation with nature. Believe in the simple magic of life and the service of the universe. And the meaning of that waiting, that alertness, that craning of the neck and the creatures will dawn upon you. Every word would falsify, but look, round you beings live their life. And to whatever point you turn, you come upon being. And we'll summarize one more paragraph. Relation is mutual. My thou affects me as I affect it. We are molded by our people, pupils and built up by our works. The bad man, lightly touched by the holy primary word, becomes one who reveals how we are educated by children and by animals. We live our lives inscrutably included within the streaming mutual life of the universe. I think I'll end there. Thank you.